Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Thirty-three episodes, John. Thirty-three episodes. Impressive, Dave. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a uh, lot of talking, started, man. We started <laughs> too much talking. I think many would agree. Thirty-three episodes, my friends. You have made it. You have climbed the mountain, or just skipped ahead. Uh, this is the the last podcast we are recording for season one of From Babylon with Love. Thirty-three episodes. We started in September. We made it all the way to the end of May. That's a full school year right there. And we're going to be taking a break for the summer. But this is this is the last one. This is the one where we're going to try to dive into all the things and chart some kind of path forward uh, in this particular moment that we find ourselves. And we do find ourselves in a particularly difficult and dark place. I mean, we do find ourselves, culturally speaking, at a time in which we are we're in the midst of pandemic. We're in the midst of reemerging from quarantine. We're in the midst of dealing with hostilities, uh, just returning full force. We're in the midst of racial violence in the country. We're in the midst of, of Christians uh, arguing, disagreeing about any number of particular issues. We're in the midst of an election season. We're in the midst of so many different points uh, that at any second have turned into a hotspot here or a hotspot there. And what we want to do on this last and final episode is we want to start with the reality that we're in. We're, we started the podcast not to present a form of Christianity that was disconnected from, from the world, from, from the things that we all face, from the culture in which we find ourselves. Uh, we always wanted to deal with, with what was at hand. And even though we have a lot of hope and even though we trust Jesus for every single day and we know at the end of the day um, the Lord's plan will win out, uh, we wanted to acknowledge, even by naming the podcast From Babylon With Love, we wanted to acknowledge that we recognize we are in a particularly dark moment in our history. And I don't mind saying that. I know some people... Some people don't like the name of the podcast. They think it's too bleak. They think I should be more optimistic. They think um, any number of things. But, you know, I think back to the Apostle Peter describing, you know, Christians living in and around the city of Rome in the first century uh, to the church in Babylon. Uh, it's never meant that it was impossible to be a Christian, a strong Christian, to find the Lord um, in a time or in places or amidst a cultural atmosphere that is not for the Lord, that, that has so much uh, dark stuff in it that it's actually uh, makes it sometimes even more imperative, more obvious that we need to make sure we're trying to think clearly, trying to pray carefully through things and trying to chart our way forward uh, as the church. And so, I mean, that's why we started the thing. So I got no problem facing up to that. And, and for this last and final episode, John and I wanted to look at a bit of the darkness we find ourselves in. We want to kind of try to describe some of the things that we see um, and ultimately try to figure out what kind of lessons there are for us in this, in this moment. Um, we don't want to pretend it's better than it is. Uh, we don't want to be hopeless. We don't want to say, and so who knows, and we'll just see what happens. We're not fatalistic. We're Christians. Uh, and so we know that the Lord has not has not paused in his dealing with us and his development with us or of us as disciples. There are lessons for us at every moment in our lives, no less in this moment of, of crisis. And so, so John and I want to tackle that, and we want to kind of look uh, from where we actually are standing right now and see if we can't describe some of the features of this darkness and see if we can't describe some of the crises that we see and then see if we can't sort of sort of find our way with the Lord forward uh, to some lessons that we might take from this. So, Pastor John, with, with this last and final episode, with that, that setup, uh, that, the darkness, the cloud, the maybe some bleakness there, um, where do you think we should start in just sort of looking around ourselves at this moment? What, what sort of things are you seeing that we need to sort of uh, 
kind of describe or face up to first and foremost, do you think? Okay, first I want to say hi, Dave. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. That was again. a long way of saying, hey, John. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. That's How's okay. It going? <laughs> that's okay. Um, I, I think the thing that probably concerns me the most about the work of the church and the work that we need to do in teaching the scriptures is that what's been revealed by our contemporary crisis, and I think there's a crisis. I mean, we could talk about it and define it. Um, but but what, uh, what concerns me the most is there seems to be this almost inversion of personal existence within even the believers who try to follow the Lord. Uh, when, when I was, um, I guess I was just in my tween years even, in teen years in the 60s, there was a general awareness that our ideals and politics were kind of like overarching canopy over the individual. You could sort through them and, and, and believe them, not believe them, refine them. You could go to school and learn more about them. And you could pick and choose whether you wanted to uh, have a particular ideal or not or uh, which, which side of pract uh, practicality you wanted to err on. But it was sort of an overarching, it was outside of ourselves, and we, we were very aware of that. And, and we got very enthusiastic about ideals that we liked, you know, particularly the anti-war stuff. You know, if, if you didn't want to go to war, you, you liked that. Um, but what I find today most concerning is that there's almost an inversion of the self where that's become now a heartbeat for people, even believers, the, their idealism, their, their political um, strivings, their, their position on things. And, you know, not to, uh, you know, not to turn this uh, into a uh, cultural thing, but, you know, we're in the middle of this COVID crisis and we've got this uh, political uh, juggernaut polarization loggerheads going on with, with almost um, a full-on uh, COVID deniers or COVID truthers, mm -hmm. and those who are who are deathly afraid that the human race is going to be extinct, and they're and they're like battling each other, but they're not really they're they're not really masses of people. They're not the most masses of people. Most people are just like, hey, you tell me there's a disease out there, I don't want to catch it. What do I got to do to avoid it? Right. And uh, you know the the uh, the visible protesters and the uh, the people that are going nuts, I mean, they're, they're on other agendas. They're, on, they're totally politically agendized. Mm. And so inside you've got this heartbeat of, of, of political um, power that's, that's either uh, driving some one way or driving some another way. But then you've got our faith in Christ, which now is in the canopy mm. up, up top. It's not inside of us. It's overhead. It's like I got all these beliefs and... And, and I, I'm glad I have them. I'm one of them that believes. But it's not, it's not really at the root of our existence. It's now it's up in the optional zone. Right. It's not driving us. It's maybe a point of reference if we want it. Yes. And that, and that to me is the most concerning problem because we run the risk of, of um, uh, returning to a, a political stabilization See, right now, nobody wants to live with this hatred back and forth. Right. This is like un, unacceptable. Civilizations can't do this. But the, the danger is for us to return to some type of stabilization, but, but stabilize with political power at the heart of a throne of our heart, mm. at the uh, driving point behind culture, at the, you know, uh, my understanding of political power is in America is it was always supposed to be uh, the fallout from culture. We live our lives and we have our cultural practices and then our politics are based on what we like culturally and what we want to see culturally. And, uh, and it follows the, the habits and activities. It doesn't drive them. Mm. So, uh, so, so uh, I think that, that that's what concerns me the most because as a teaching uh, pastor, uh, it's very hard to teach people who have the language of Jesus but have him up in the canopy, have him up above as an ideal, and have something else in their heart that they really live for, that they really burn for, that they really uh, could, could kill somebody for. Um, you know, that, that's what the hardest thing in the world because you know 
that that they can dismiss uh, the teachings of Christ to their peril, to their eternal peril, and uh, and there's a, there's a bunch of other reasons why that's so undesirable, which which hopefully we could get to in discussing uh, the inversion of the self and and the inversion of how we got here. But um, but that that's pretty much my biggest concern. That if we go forward, we we're able to address some of the problems that have been revealed by what's happened. Yeah, well, it's so interesting to me that you're seeing the real danger, or at least a real danger, is where we settle after this moment. And that you're describing us settling in a form of stability that would be uh, based on alternate forms of power than the life of the Spirit, than the power of the gospel, than the teachings of Jesus. And, and you're talking in a context in which many of people in this country profess Christ, claim to be Christian, claim to walk with Christ, and and the danger would be not that. So you're saying on the, on the average person knows that this is a toxic climate. The average person knows this is unlivable. The average person knows that, you know, when you're constantly having to avoid or feeling alienated by family members because of just knock down, drag out disagreements, that, that this is not a way of continuing to be, that anyone is like, yay, <laughs> we should keep doing that. So you're saying one of the more frightening things is if we don't, see what has actually been revealed right now when everything's sort of raw crackling nerves that are all sparking and everything like this if we don't see what that actually is what christ what problems are actually being revealed um then the comp then the set the solution will be e even more dangerous because the solution may be long lasting the solution may feel like uh, like God's in it, the solution may feel like something that we could live in and we could all make a, a compromise with and we could all settle into. And you're saying that that would be uh, even more perilous on some level than having to negotiate uh, what everyone can feel viscerally is an unbelievably unhealthy way of being toward each other in society. Is that, is that more or less? Yeah, and I'd, I'd go one step further, okay. unfortunately. I think this this has revealed that though evangelicals are great in number, uh, we are not really honestly driven by our relationship with Christ. And we've known this as as churchmen for for a while that that when you when you bring in the masses and you get them singing the same song and lifting hands on cue you're not always reaching them with the teachings of Christ. You're not always getting them to face the reality of their, of their spiritual life. And I think what this has revealed is that, that the evangelical church has a call to Christ that it hasn't answered yet. And until, until that call's answered, we're not going to be out there uh, uh, being a good witness to, I think, a bulk of, American humanity that is not so radically polarized. And that's the point I was trying to make right. before. I think, I think the average person, though they, they don't know Christ, they, they have a sense of, of civil decency uh, and, and a sense of, of um, awareness of others and themselves uh, to where they are not being represented by the, by the vicious uh, stuff that's going on right now. And so they their eternity hangs in the balance. And meanwhile, the evangelical church, which is supposed to be filled with dedicated followers of Christ, is is not a whole lot different from them, is is drinking out of the same trough, has the same uh, heartbeat, has the same blood flowing through the aortic system, and has the same canopy, which is supposed to be inward and is supposed to be our our life and breath, and uh, so so that's that so is the okay. problem. So that maybe you could explain that. So you started with this image of you know your experience, you know the average person sort of in the '60s, um, politics, the things that that have become our central to our identity now were were not at the center of our identity then even though we felt very strongly about certain things they they were more like a canopy that where you had ideas you had beliefs about 
you know, proper forms of government or, or certain social or cultural issues or whatever, but it was not the driving chamber of your identity, of your, of every action of, of who you felt yourself to be. And you're saying there's been an inversion where that canopy that was a, a, a series of available references that you were connected to and interested in and might draw on your ideals about politics or your ideas about certain things um, has now become sort of the central engine of who you are. Yeah. And, and then what, what in the former time was at the center, uh, namely uh, religious faith, commitment to Christ. Possibly. Possibly. Yes. Uh, of course, not not in some you know uh, bygone era where everybody was strong Christians or anything, but but where those those things would have been more characteristically at the center of people's lives, have now been expelled or displaced back up to the canopy as sort of the secondary issues. Um, so you're you're describing this as an inversion of the self, yes, uh, where this has been this sort of reversal. And just thinking of the language of the self, maybe we can maybe we can push into how has the self, if that inversion has taken place, was there before and after ways of people describing the self, of thinking through the self? I mean, the American context, uh, you know, the land of Walt Whitman, the land of I mean, there's a song of the self. We are the self, right? Yeah. We, are, <laughs> we are we are the, the country built on, you know, a certain sort of idea maybe of the self of the importance of each individual having a place and um so so could you take us into that world of how we maybe have changed or altered our descriptions or our understanding of of our of our self yeah yeah well i think it goes all the way back to the reformation the early 1500s i i think there was a certain uh corruption that was protested against it was the uh the, you know the vices or the uh, abuses of the of the organized church and there was a protest against it and one of the things that was protested was was the lack of having access to the scriptures so the scriptures were translated despite opposition and uh, uh the first complete modern english uh bible in 1535 uh comes out and one of the th one of the uh, passages that's that's translated and becomes new to the reader is in Psalm 51, where God speaking uh, prophetically says that he desires truth or requires truth in the inward parts. So so the call. So here are the reformers looking for scripture to reform the organizations mm. And the scripture's trying to reform the self. Mm. Say the self is is not true. It's right. it's it's not pleasing to God. Psalm fifty one, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, yes. murdered her husband Uriah, and is confessing after a year of, of avoiding the Lord, refusing to confess, has been called on it by Nathan the prophet, now confesses his sins to the Lord, and then the Lord is addressing him what the Lord requires, what the Lord has been looking for. Yeah, and so we'll fast forward through uh, England and Henry VIII and all of that uh, parallel. But it problems. was interesting that you. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it brings up a few things. Uh, but it's interesting, you know. I mean, the Reformation, Luther's teaching through the Psalms, right? Like there, there's there's points of contact here where you have an institutional church that, in many ways, uh, on the ground, feels removed and or blatantly corrupt, or or at least off-center uh, in, some, in some basic ways. And you're saying part of this reformational moment is a recovery of this language of what the Lord is actually requiring or looking for. Yes, yes, and, and, uh, and it is a, a perhaps a natural development of, of man's understanding of what God requires and what Scripture says. Uh, and, and so, um, unfortunately, though, over the following centuries— the societies began to disintegrate. Mm. Uh, you know, again, skipping fast forward through Henry VIII and all of that stuff, um, the societies uh, disintegrate. The the self becomes heightened. The uh, you know, uh, a group of people get on a boat and come to another land. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the sense of self and the and importance of self uh, becomes heightened, and 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 it's developing all the time. But then. Writers like uh, Emerson, uh, transcendentalists, those who uh, who could um, who could elevate the self beyond even authority under God. Right. Just uh, so now, American context, because yeah, I mean, that's the thing. America largely is the product of 
of this sort of uh, renovation or elevation of the self, right? Yeah. The most important thing becomes how I'm treated politically, my sovereignty as a, a person, even as a political unit. Um, and, and so the American tradition of the self is perhaps the strongest, at least in contemporary Western uh, sort of you know, world milieu. These writers, the transcendentalists in the 18th and the 19th century, um, are obsessively writing about the self as almost this, you know, this individual autonomous being in the world. Um, but they are also grappling with how does that self work with others? How does that self yeah. part of society? So, so Emerson wrote, for example, we, ha- we had to be sincere. And, and that, that root of sincere is without wax, without hypocrisy, without right. phoniness. Right. Uh, we owe that to society, to be sincere. And he wrote about a parallel in to the self, which the self has got to be authentic. You, you have to have duty to yourself. Mm. You, you, can't, uh, you, you can't go against that duty or you'll fragment yourself. And, and um, so your, your moral responsibility of, of being sincere uh, and, and responsible to your neighbor got replaced basically by one's moral duty to be authentic to one's own self. Mm. It's a, it was an end in, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So just let me set the stage just a little bit more for this idea, because that's all it is, an idea of history. But mm-hmm. at that time, the world was still very much enchanted. And what I mean by enchanted is that it was, for those who, who understood that God was creator and they read scripture, they understood that, that God was imminent uh, as well as transcendent. Uh, they understood that there were things like angels and there were demons and there was... Uh, there were there were forces that were not seen, uh, but but the world was enchanted in that it was filled with things that you couldn't see and know, and and if you uh, were walking with God and you had a relationship with God, that enchantment worked for you. You you had a measure of of being able to uh, succeed under tough times and. And the world uh, couldn't overcome the enchantment of having a God present. And, and, and there are all other forms of enchantment, uh, you know, that, that were in, uh, in literature or what have you. Uh, but, but at that time, enchantment was, was all around. But then as the Enlightenment began to dispel the, en- the enchantment, the world started to become a disenchanted place. Mm-hmm. And particularly... Uh, you go from the mid-1800s into the uh, 20th century, and the, the disenchantment progresses and falls as darkness over some of the world. Uh, and so you have a, a series of, of philosophers. You have Kierkegaard uh, questioning uh, the beliefs of many Christians, just challenging it outright, mm-hmm. saying, you, you act like you believe, but you don't really believe. You you say you don't understand things about the Bible, but you don't want to understand things about the Bible. You, you want to live your life. You don't want to get too close because you don't want to come under the authority of God. Mm. And, and so Kierkegaard writes in this almost uh, uh, a cynical way of the self being honest with God. It's going to be dishonest with God. Uh, then in um, the latter half uh, from 1844 to 1900, you have Nietzsche. And uh, I know you've talked a lot about Nietzsche mm-hmm. uh, through the years, and, and uh, the impact of Nietzsche was, was devastating in some ways. His proclamation of, of the death of God, uh, it, was, you know, it, was, it was revoked or rebuked as, as he was a madman by, by believers, by Christians and theologians, but it was really impactful, really uh, cynical. It was, it was uh, absolute and total cynicism. It was... Uh, cynicism that that uh, just mocked Christianity, mocked the idea that there was anything that that was of value for a weakness that uh, that Christianity required in an individual in order to have a humble heart and be right before God, and 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 so um, you you have this this self developing, but but undergoing all this uh, uh, philosophical attacks and and conditioning and being separated ultimately separated from God, mm. uh, not intentionally, but, but because of the force of, of this idea of, of the enchantment of, of the world's going away, the disenchantment sinking in, the philosophers are saying God's not there, uh, the, 
the cynics are saying, yeah, come on, you're just kidding yourself. And, uh, you know, it gets to uh, it gets to the point uh, ultimately where where Kierkegaard declares that a human being relates to God, others and self. But despair happens when a person can only relate to themselves and God's not there anymore. Mm. So so you have this decline of the self uh, into this world where there's no transcendent world, there's no enchantment, there's not even an obligation toward others. Uh, and, and okay, so now you mix in the toxic cocktail of narcissism. Mm. Narcissism begins to develop in, in our century, our last century, in this century. Uh, narcissism is the uh, enamoring of the self, the, the total, the cynical anger of self, you know, just, just, I'm just gonna, you know, I, I think there's a, a, a law, a line in a Bob Dylan song, I'm gonna get while, while there's getting to be got, mm. you know, just like, yeah, I'm quoted, taking what uh, I can take. I quoted the Hopkins poem the other night, um, myself, I sing, myself, I speak and spell for that I came, right? Like that. The, and it is, it's sort of like you're saying, it comes out of this existentialist sort of fit of, uh, of disenchantment, but also disgust. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a weirdly dark uh, moment of self-proclamation that is not arising from some sort of stable, it's like, it's a form of rage almost, yes. right? It's this obsession that is rage. Yeah. Yeah. And it has, and it has a characteristic of, of political power mm. In that it's not it's not love it's not others it's not faith it's not hope uh, it doesn't belong at the center of the heart it and when it gets in the center of the heart it dislocates the person the person becomes vacant and uh, you know we can get to, to that in a second but okay. there is this phrase that's that's emerged that I think really typifies how toxic and how uh, separate uh, we've we've been isolated just in general and it's now uh, it's, it's not love thyself, it's love thy selfie. Mm -hmm. That we've turned into the place where mm -hmm. our own image becomes, it be, it's truly almost a parallel of narcissism. Mm. How we perceive ourselves viewed. Of the myth of narcissism, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're going to see ourselves through others and how we see that. Uh, social media, it's easy to have uh, an image of self. You can work at it, you can get it going. Uh, in our relationships at, at church, we can... We can kid others and, and uh, have ourselves be, uh, you know, uber spiritual or whatever or, or uber mature. Uh, we, we become brands, right? We yeah. create like a brand. Brand of this ourselves. Is, this is who yeah. I am. This is my brand. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the, um, the state of existence that it scares me because we have not trained against this in the church. We haven't mm. taught scripture uh, uh, that that that's the antidote to this. And in fact, um, I think there's something about us, our creation, that's been almost stomped out, and that is our personhood. Hmm. And I think our personhood, and obviously it's not our selfie, it's not our brand. Our personhood is the reality of something inside of us that God wants to thrive. It's protected and built uh, against abuse because it won't thrive unless it's in relation to others and in relation to God. It's got to have elements of it that, that the church or the teachings of the scripture promote and, uh, and advance frequently, but our evangelical preaching does not care for it. It does not advance it. It doesn't push it. Well, as you and I know from inside of this world, um, has in fact done the opposite, accelerated the branding of, of you. And church has become about you and crafting a, a happy life and crafting a fulfillment and crafting, but crafting and, and, and sort of promoting, advertising, attractional, right? Like the church is almost like trying to play catch up with the, uh, the, the branding of the self and the creation of a, of a separate identity to yeah. be obsessed over, um, almost just to keep uh, people in the seats or to sound relevant. This is stuff that we've been wrestling with for the last, well, several decades for yeah. you, a couple of decades for me. Um, so you're saying the church has not adequately uh, taught or trained or guarded its people against what has now sort of 
taken the place of personhood, which is this sort of artificial image of who you are yes uh, a self that is not a person that's not centered properly it's not it, centered it's, it's not, not directed properly. it's not attached in the uh, to the things or the people that it's actually attached to it uh, doesn't acknowledge the attachments to god doesn't acknowledge the attachments to others in ways that are real or healthy so you're describing this as a I mean, a disenchantment. So yes. the personhood has been sort of vacated. Uh, it's been replaced. And, and, and if I could do a twist on Descartes' please. famous phrase, sure, it's become, I vote, therefore I am. Okay, wow. So, so you're reconnecting now to how did the political self, it, because you're saying now, and if I, correct me if I'm wrong, the political or the ideological uh, aspects of a person's sort of interests um, ideology and partisanship and these kind of things, these are brands. They're not persons, right? They're, they're modes, they're, they're flavors, they're something not personhood. They're, uh, they're a set of ideas that may or may not cohere, um, but they offer something that might feel like a self. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it feels powerful. Yeah. So um, there, there are uh, parts of the personhood that that are identifiable across the spectrum of the different varieties of Christianity, whether it's Catholic or Protestant or, or um, Orthodox. And uh, one writer, Robert Spawman, identified uh, a number of them. He wrote a book called Persons, The Difference Between Someone and Something. Mm. And they're pretty common things. Um, uh, a person has intentionality, a will. Uh, through mindfulness and skills, you can become more and more intentional. So, for example, uh, there are certain skills that, that, uh, that you can desire as a person. Uh, uh, we know someone who's studying Greek, so they can become proficient at, at reading the scriptures in Greek. So it, it's a skill that you can become proficient at, and that skill then makes you mindful, and out of that mindfulness now, uh, your will uh, becomes uh, more and more exercised. You have the intention of understanding an original writing. This could be woodworking. Mm. I, could be, I could say, I want to uh, learn how to build, and I will have to have a lot of intentionality to do it. Uh, well, you know, One of the problems we've had in our last two generations is that uh, a lot of things that we do don't require a whole lot of will, <laughs> mm. you know, don't require a whole lot of skills. And if you, and we all do some things like that, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of skill to put a stamp on an envelope, okay? But um, it takes a lot of skill to write cursive, mm. and uh, you got to want to do it to, to learn it, and hopefully all kids will be taught that eventually. <laughs> um, so, so... There's this part of intentionality that, that I'm responsible to develop on my own. What do I want to do with, with my life? What do I want to do with my will? Um, you know, we pray, uh, Lord, uh, may your will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will at some point can become our will if, if we want that to happen. If we, if we want to recognize his will and then make our will his will, uh, there, there is a uh, spiritual pathway we go on to do that. Another part of a personhood is, is transcendence or the rationale, the mind. Mm. We're aware of things. We're, we're in pursuit of the truth. We care what truth is. Uh, now, one of the problems we're up against is the foundationalism of the 19th century is not the basis of conversion or discipleship like we thought it was. Uh, because the truth is disputed in a lot of ways, and, and, uh, and a lot of times we only have partial truth. But that doesn't mean we abandon all truth, right. because the, the transcendence that, that's required of a person is to be able to think things through and be able to understand that there is a difference between truth and not truth. Okay, and obviously we are losing sight of that uh, in today's world. It is, it is a dispute. I mean, we can't even agree. Uh, we can't even agree if something's dangerous or not. Mm -hmm. uh, w truth has been unmoored. It's been completely uh, thrown uh, off the wall at each other on partisanship issues, and um, uh, and 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 so how is a how is a person supposed to develop uh, their mind and their rationale? 
if the truth is up for grabs and the truth is uh, all, you know, whatever one person thinks the truth is. I told a story maybe a little while back about my students in general, my high school students, they, when asked, you know, what do you think about this or that, often return the opinion, there's no way to know because they say this, they say this, but you don't know who's telling the truth. And they have a narrative of, you know, I don't know, the quote unquote media can't be trusted. And all that means is from whatever position they or their family might be standing, the other side's story can't be trusted. But my students, because they're less partisan or ideological maybe than than even their parents or at least than even my generation or older folks are, um, all, their takeaway at the end of the day is nobody knows. Nobody knows anything, yeah. and there's no way to know. And that was in, that was intentional. That yeah. that's an intentional uh, uh, cul-de-sac. You know, the, I've lived uh, probably the last 30 years listening to this uh, complaint about the mainstream media, <laughs> and and I just it just so disgusts me, especially when the alternative is a is a state-run media. But you know, sometimes sometimes mainstream means foolproof, and and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, particularly with uh, with when when journalism is in a good era, uh, you know, the the, the uh, fifth estate, the fourth estate, whatever they're calling it <laughs> these days, uh, you know, journalism is a part of the freedoms because without without journalism that's good, freedoms are abused, yeah. and uh, so. You know, the, the whole idea of, of there isn't truth. Now, you have to you have to take everything with a grain of salt to be sure. Uh, you can't just, you know, you have to uh, understand there are biases. But is that really that hard to do? I mean, to listen to somebody report on something and know they graduated from a, a uh, liberal college, but but are they citing facts? Are they quoting facts? Are right. they disputing? You're saying, you're saying that, that aspect of, of Okay, truth, we may have perspective, we may have biases, we may have, that, that may all be obvious, but any just sort of basic intentionality of engaging and actually searching for these things, it's not difficult. There's not, there's, not there isn't actually some monster walking by called the mainstream media. There's a handful of outlets, and you can choose which ones to read, which ones not, and hopefully be able to compare them. But you're saying we're just kind of an age in which people check out before they even go past any point of saying well and you're per, you're encouraged to check out if somebody tells you yeah. you can't listen to anything <laughs> you see on your tv but but what i tell except you is going to be said. true <laughs> what I just you've it. stepped into the position of authority yeah and and uh, right and that's no good right so so this idea of of um uh pursuit of truth We've got a pursuit of truth. It's not our salvation we're pursuing. If we're following Christ, we're following the truth, even if we don't know it. Uh, but, but to live as a person, you have to pursue truth, and you have to tell the truth to others, and, and you have to recognize that when people aren't telling you the truth, uh, there is not a good ending uh, going to happen. So, so developing for, as a person after transcendence is worship. People who think and understand and see truth end up worshiping something. If they see God, they worship God. So the, the beauty of this is that you and I don't worship Jesus because we were told to. Mm. Uh, we worship Jesus because we saw him this week. Mm -hmm. We prayed something and he answered a prayer. Yeah. He re-enchanted our disenchanted world with his power. Yeah. And we saw it and understood it with our rational mind. And now we're going to make these vocal cords sing. Mm. We're going to make them acknowledge that he's real and that he did this. Uh, and so uh, so uh, worship is a part of personhood. Uh, and then also um, existing spread out over time. This is a tough one for people to imagine. But, you know, if you really want to uh, develop something, a skill that's very difficult... It takes time to develop it. If you want to be a research biologist, for example, you might end up going to uh, undergraduate and study uh, chemistry. You might go to graduate school and study uh, physics. Mm. You might go postgraduate and, and, uh, and, and do research uh, in, in biology. And it, you may, over a long period of time, invest in a skill like that. Uh, our stewardship happens over time. 
Paul said in the scriptures. Don't wait till the last minute. Uh, set aside something each week for the blessings of the church and its ministry and, and do that on a regular basis over time. It's good stewardship. Don't wait until the last minute when somebody has to come in and, and plead with you to give all that you could have given over time. Um, we're, so we're good stewards, uh, and that's a part of being a person. Uh, to these days, uh, I hope everybody could be good stewards with your carbon footprint. Than this like floating, uh, autonomous self selfie. <laughs> yeah, and and just generalize that and say yeah. without a construct, a political construct, a social construct, an evangelical construct, mm. without placing that over the top of it, as a person. God will tell me when I'm not being a good steward. You know, you're you're a father. Mm. You need to invest in your child. You need to you need to show them love and teach them love. And and John, you're not being a good steward of that. Uh, and so I can take that from the Lord. He can develop me as a person. Uh, you know, I don't need some some idea of promise keepers one era and who knows what another era in order to do those things. Mm. I can just develop and grow as a father as well as a you know, a husband and, and, and have uh, good stewardship without constructs all around that, that put me under the law of those things. Because that's the big challenge, right? You, you end up volatilely sort of moving from this private, no one tell me what to do, to suddenly absolutely desperately clinging to some sort of construction, tell me what to do, tell me what to think, tell me how to be, which team am I on, what are we doing today, big group think modes and things yeah. like that. And and we're trying to own the, the fact that the church has sort of excelled at uh, programmatizing discipleship, which ends up short-circuiting actual discipleship. Because you're saying as human beings, as persons, we've already been placed in a nest of obligations, commitments, responsibilities, relationships that the Lord intends to meet us in. Yes. Those already existing duties um, and connections we have with the world and with each other that's where he wants to actually develop that's where he meets real needs that's where our desires to be better fathers or a better neighbor or better friend uh co-worker etc that's where the lord actually longs to meet with people rather than this thing where you go to the institutional structure we tell you what discipleship looks like when you show up uh, you plug in a couple uh, things where you identify with how we've given you language for certain slogans or certain things. I mean, a little cynical, but but even if the intentions were good once upon a time, uh, evangelicalism uh, institutionally um, has often completely uh, co-opted and then gotten in the way of actual discipleship being developed. And we, we just know this from history, just the experience of the last several decades. Um, but you're saying that is also sort of uh, pointing to a problem of a loss of personhood yeah. that we would even be so vulnerable to having, let's say, p pastors telling us how to do and what to be and how to vote and how to think and what to what how to view ourselves and how to view everything around us. Something has already been lost that we would even be uh, amenable to that. Yeah. Yeah. Because. That's so deep in who, who we've been created to be. It has to come from our Heavenly Father. We call Him Father when we discover who He created us to be. We, we learn those things. That's learning the will of God uh, from Him and not being, not being told it. So, so we're, we're opening up the Scriptures, and the Scriptures should lead the individual to want to develop themselves as a person. And we should be seeing signs of that in, in, their, in their understanding of the Scripture, we should be helping people see that instead of giving them this, uh, you know, here's your focus sheet for taking care of your family this week mm -hmm. uh, or whatever. And, and it should be something that's, that's uh, really coming from God himself, but out of relationship with us. So another facet of this that's interesting to me is that we've totally shifted away uh, from the awareness of, of our death uh, we have an awareness that we will die one day, all of us, as part of being a person. Now, you can live in denial of that, uh, you know, but, but for most of us, we understand we're not going to live uh, beyond a certain point in this life. And one of the, um, one of the losses of, of personhood is that we live our lives according to a resume 
we want ourselves to have skills and abilities and be sellable. And it's kind of connected with this image thing. Brand. And what we should be wanting to do is think about our obituary. Hmm. What we should be thinking about is, hey, you know, if I'm going to die 20 years from now, what do I want said about me? What do I want to, to what do I want to have um, been known for? Mm. Do I want my word to be solid? Do I want my wife to say he was always there for me? Do I want my kids to say he did the best he could? Mm. Um, you know, uh, or do I want my obituary to be filled with regrets because I've got to push my resume to get acceptance and and be an important person now? So I think this is a vital part of, of personhood is to just sit back and realize that life is a time span that's finite and I have a, a will and I have uh, transcendence, I have a mind, I, I worship a God, the God hopefully, uh, and, and, um, and, and that I need to understand that I develop over time into something that, that has a, a final picture a mm. final narrative that's that ends this is the end uh, i remember i went to a funeral once of a of a uh, young child seven-year-old boy and it was such a shocking death uh, that there wasn't a lot said at the graveside uh, but i had the privilege of standing next to a uh, a woman who who was connected with worship and um she she was um, reflecting on the little boy's life, and she said, you know, it's a mistake to think this life was cut short. This was a full life, and we just need to see what was in this life. Hmm. And uh, it was, I can still remember it to this day, uh, it helped me understand that, you know, none of us know how long we're going to live. It is going to end, and God is sovereign. Jesus is Lord. And so he is the author and finisher and one day, it will be complete. And what is it going to say when it's complete? So, you know, and I'm not trying to manipulate a story about myself, but I'm trying to actively participate in a story about myself. Right. Uh, Memento mori, right? Yeah. Remember, you, you must die. <laughs> Remember to die. Remember that you will die, Caesar, right? Like the, yeah. that, that ancient kind of idea that... At the moment of our exaltation, we could forget the very the very shape of our actual lives, and then forget to live into that shape. I yeah. think is what you're saying. We're trying to sort of escape the shape and waste. Yeah, and we waste the opportunity to full to fill out that part of of who uh, who we really would want to be if we stopped and thought about it. So another f feature of it. Uh, uh, According to Spawman, that's uh, kind of across the board, and you'll find this in a number of different writings, is our ability to be independent of our particular context in a particular moment. Mm. <laughs> so, 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 for example, my dog cannot contain himself when he knows it's time to go for a walk. <laughs> he studies, Kathy and I. Right. He knows. <laughs> you know, we can talk in code. We can spell things out. You know, if we say, do you want to go for a W?, He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's on it. he cannot get outside of that moment. <laughs> he's an and think, he can, he can, he can read and write. <laughs> he can't sit there and think, well, I hope they decide to go. He's like, I want to go. So, but if, if I'm having a disagreement with Kathy and I'm being bullheaded, I can just relent. I can just step outside of that context for a minute and say, look, you know, we started this discussion over something and I was so set on this that I really couldn't see her perspective. What is her perspective? And I can step outside of my context, be independent of it. Now, I'm not saying to detach and dismiss from it, because if, if there's responsibility that I bear, I can go back into that context and apologize and, and uh, make things right uh, and, or not. But, but I, I'm not locked into my context. Uh, I can sit here today and think about uh, fishing in the Sierras though I can't get there because of a pandemic, mm. okay? Mm. So, so I have a certain independence of my context, and that, that couples with the last one I wanted to mention. I'm sorry it took so long with this, but hey, it's a podcast, it's right? It's a podcast. So, so the last one is imagination. You've been given an imagination. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a recent book about uh, how fiction 
uh, Protestant fiction is fading out to it's almost non-existent now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and 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 I think about our imagination. I think about I think about like Chesterton and and uh, you know Lewis and I think about Tolkien and and people that they use the imagination to to fire up worlds that that we could that we could learn from and uh, science from science fiction to great works of, of literary art that that uh, or, or literariness that you know more about than anyone I know. Um, you know this idea that our imagination. Now, I think it's needed more than ever hmm. because it, it detaches from that disenchantment. It, it's able to get into an enchanted world because of the way we were made. We're made to be able to enter into narratives as if we're actually there in some sense and to glean lessons from that, to understand that world. Um, you know, the, in, in fact, translating scripture is, is in, in a part is entering a world in which the Lord is real and visible and speaks and acts and interacts with the participants of the scripture. And, uh, you know, part of, of gleaning things out of scripture is going in and out of that world and bringing right. it back into our world. Right. So, yeah. It's interesting. You said that about, um, you know, cause you, what you're saying is if in our present context, in this, in the imminent presentist moment of everything happening all of a sudden right now, um, if that imminent moment is disenchantment, right? If that's the sort of the imminent frame of our existence, it's not real. Mm-hmm. And that you, to, to access the real, you have to detach from that immediate sort of, uh, to use your, that, that bullishness in the moment, reactionariness of the self trying to find its position or add to its resume or brand itself more favorably. Um, because the moment itself has been disenchanted, so it has less contact yes. with reality. So to to access reality, you need to sort of detach from that that disenchanted uh, instance or immediate experience um, in order to, as you're saying, to get back in, to get yeah. you have to come out to come back in in a way that actually has contact with your personhood instead of yourself, with with God instead of your ideologies. Et cetera, et cetera. So, so then where, how can we bridge then? So from imagination, um, what is the way to, to start to work on these things? How do we think through where to go? Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars and and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe. And your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.